Alrighty, well, let's start off with a word of prayer, shall we? Father, again, we just want to come to you and ask that you would bless our time. Um, just give us, as always, wisdom and understanding into your word. Um, just give us that heart of praise and gratitude as we go about. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Okay, so, Lord willing, uh, Devin and I will be in Montana next week, so we will not have Sunday school next week. Um, and also, I think Margaret said that we're taking a, a break from all Sunday schools the week after as well. So no Sunday school for two weeks consecutively, uh, rather than just trying to get a substitute and all of that. So today's talk, Apologetics and the Ascension, the who, what, and where of apologetics. So this one is an interesting topic, and it, it really goes along with what Pastor Ben's sermon was about this morning. Basically, I want to deal with one question um, that's really been weighing on me ever since I became not only just a believer, but uh, an on-fire Christian, you know, wanting to serve the Lord. Why is there so little penetrating power in the church today? Why is there so little power in taking the gospel out into our culture? It's not so much that the church itself is immoral, it just lacks passion. Why? Why does the church lack passion? It lacks the decisiveness to change the world around them. Um, if you guys know, my part of my undergraduate years, I went to California Baptist University in Riverside. Just a couple blocks up from CalBAP um, is Harvest Christian Church, Greg Laurie's church. It's huge. It's like 30,000 members. This thing is massive, okay? Also, in Riverside, California, is the leading producer of pornography in the country. And that bothered me when I was down at CalBAP. And I'm wondering, if we have one of the largest churches here, how is it that we're not impacting the surrounding area around us? Why are we the still greatest pornographers in the country, in the city where one of the largest churches are? So the first stage of this problem, I believe, and that I saw sometimes when I would attend churches like that, is where people are stuck at being a spectator, right? At times, it's a good thing to be a spectator, such as going to a drag race or a baseball game, um, and to be able to enjoy just being there. That's a good thing. People have the same experience when going to church, unfortunately. They go and they listen to a great sermon, uh, sing some great hymns, and that in and of itself is all a good thing, but it only takes you so far into the position of being a spectator. Being a spectator, you can be moved, right? Um, you can be moved to depths by it, such as if you're sitting listening to Beethoven's Fifth or another great symphony, you'll actually be moved to an emotional standing. But if that's all there is in life, just going to symphonies or something else that moves you, such as great sermons or great worship times to satisfy us, sooner or later, what happens? We become bored and we lose that passion. And then we end up losing that decisiveness to impact the surrounding culture uh, around us. So, anyone here love Christmas music, right? So, do you love to listen to it? Yeah, I do, I do too. How about if you listen to it too much? Would you begin to lose your excitement with it? Yeah, you would. Okay, obviously what I'm not saying is studying the Word of God too much, you're going to lose your excitement of it, right? So don't make that correlation. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that being stuck in that spectator phase while listening to the Christmas music will eventually give way to boredom and loss of excitement for it. Being a spectator is good as far as it goes and that's where it, it ends. But it's not where we want to be ultimately. Sooner or later, 
it will not satisfy with just merely being that spectator. The second stage of life is the ethical or the moral stage. This is the, this is the action. This is the stage where we get down out of the stands and get down onto the field, as it were. Now, to use a football analogy, where's Mike when I need him? You take yourself out of the stands and you go out onto the field where a 300-pound... <laughs> no. Where a 300-pound linemen are ready to obliterate you. And there's significantly more risk at that point being on the playing field than there is up in the stands as a spectator. And that's how we feel as Christians, right? It's easy, it's safe, um, it doesn't require much from us to just be that spectator, just as being a spectator at a sporting event. It's a lot more difficult when you're out on the field and you yourself are potentially getting attacked. Certainly as believers, we are meant to be more than spectators. Christ never called us to just sit on the sidelines and just watch other people do the work. Not at all. We're meant to be more than sitting in the pews. We're meant to actually be salt and light. Those serve purposes. They do things. To share the gospel with people, to make the case for faith, to give honest answers to honest questions that people ask, that itself is the role of apologetics. That's why we're here. Often people have obstacles. People can't accept the gospel unless they find a certain amount of plausibility or credibility. I am standing proof of that. My big, not to, big brain, you know, you know what I mean. Big as in thick, not big as in, oh, look at me, I'm a genius. Okay, <laughs> that's what I mean. My noggin here prevented me from faith because I had such obstacles to faith in my own mind, things that didn't make sense to me that I had to work through uh, first. We need to get out. We need to speak to people in our culture, right? Get out of the stand, so to speak, and onto the playing field. This is the ethical stage. However, it's not the ultimate stage. The ultimate stage is the religious stage. If you guys don't recognize it yet, some of you will, I'm teaching you guys from Soren Kierkegaard, okay? This was his three life stages. The religious stage is similar to the ethical stage in that you're out on the playing field, but there are different ways that people play the game. There are people that play the game and there are people that play the game in a whole higher order. Those that play with passion, such as Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, if you remember them, guys that played with just entirely different set. I mean, you watched them and it was phenomenal, the passion that these guys had. Kierkegaard, of course, was not talking about football or basketball. He was talking about living your life with passion, getting out of the pews and getting onto the playing field and just having that, that desire to go out and to serve by faith. Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Rahab, by faith Sarah. Men and women were getting out onto the playing field and living their entire lives with passion. They weren't just sitting around. So this is what Soren Kierkegaard desired. It's a whole different order in which people live their lives. One with purpose and passion. If you recall, we had a question by your boy about Frederick Nietzsche, right? A couple weeks ago. Nietzsche had a profound ambivalence toward Jesus. On the one hand, he reacted against Jesus, and on the other hand, he had a great respect for Jesus. This is the guy that declared God is dead, right? And he died in insanity, signing his letters, quote, the crucified one. Interesting, right? He had this love-hate relationship with Christ throughout his entire life, this just ambivalence. So why has there been characteristically this lack of power in many churches today? I think it's a couple options. One, I would suggest it's a failure 
to understand the ascension and the relationship between apologetics and the ascension. If we can just grasp what that means, we'll go over that this morning. Two, a failure to understand the lordship of Christ, what that means in our lives. Three, the power of the Holy Spirit. And the last one, Christ's role in helping us to accomplish the mission that we have before us. In the Protestant church, we set apart a couple holidays which are prominent. Anyone guess which three? (laughs) We're about ready to celebrate one, the birth of Christ, Good Friday, and of course, Resurrection Sunday, right? Christ, or Good Friday, celebrates Christ's death and his atonement, and of course, Resurrection Sunday is the celebration of Christ conquering sin and death. These are absolutely essential, and they have massive impact on how they have altered history. They have literally altered history, these three celebrations. We have to not just understand what Christ did for us, but what he is doing for us when he still has yet to do for us. So what's the significance of the ascension? It's bearing on the world, and what does it have to do with apologetics? Well, I suppose I should have taught this in April, but here we are in December. This would have been a better talk in April, right around the 7th. The ascension is quite a puzzle when you look at it. There's a clue in Luke 24, um, verses 49 through 53. Let me read it. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with the power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And there were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Now, that's rather counterintuitive when you think about it at first glance. How many of you, after dropping off a loved one, a child, or if you've had a, a family member depart for service in the military, after they've left, you, you skip away in great joy? When has that ever happened? The great joy comes after they return, right? Not when they leave. Well, don't you think that was an odd passage? That doesn't make any sense. That's extremely counterintuitive. Jesus is parting from the disciples. The joy, like I said, is when they return back to you, not when they leave you. That doesn't make any sense. And I was reading that. It seems so strange that there's no weeping, but great joy. It is Luke 24, 49 through 53. What is it that they understood? What do we not understand? Because in that passage in Luke, that's the ascension. That's when Christ was going up into heaven, right? Well, there's another verse that kind of answers this, and it's found in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. It says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Oh, here it is. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. That's an interesting phrase there. The ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. 
As you see in verse 7, Jesus is saying it's better that he goes away rather than stay. Again, that is an odd statement. It's quite counterintuitive. How can that possibly be an advantage for Jesus to go? Why is this the case? Well, I think it's three reasons. One, where Christ is going, first and foremost. Two, who he was going to send in his place. And three, what he was going to do once he finally got there, right? So where was Christ going when he ascended? To the Father, right? He was not going away on some vacation. He wasn't going to Tahiti or Belize or something, but to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, put in a position of power and authority. This idea that Jesus is Lord is absolutely crucial. No one can say that but by the Holy Spirit. Remember that. No one can confess that Christ is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. That is substantial, right? This idea is essential not only to our calling and how we live our lives, but it's essential in apologetics and understanding of truth. 1 Peter 3.15. Someone want to quote that for us real quick? It's the most recognized of all apologetic verses. Whoever gets there first, just shout it out. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Right. But notice the first part of that verse. Sanctify Christ in your hearts. And then it goes on to the apologetic, right? But if you go a few verses or a few sections before that, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Okay. Huh. And then it continues in 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. It then goes on to say, then you give your defense after those things happen, right? You're apologetic. That's when that happens. The basic way this happens is first, one, you're not intimidated by the culture around you. It it doesn't scare you. You're not afraid to um, address it or dive headfirst into it, no matter how weird it may seem. And number two, that you sanctify Christ as Lord. That's the second part before you start to give your defense. You have that certainty, that sense that he is Lord and that you can give your defense without being defensive, right? Now, how difficult is that when you're encountering those folks to give those answers to their questions without something in you riling up and it just becoming a normal argument, right? Rather than than something heavenly. Oftentimes, the reason we are defensive is that we are intimidated or we are afraid the questions that we are asked of us might make our faith crumble. Has anyone ever felt that before? That you might come across some difficult questions that's going to disturb you to the core, right? I have. But when you come to understand the lordship of Christ in all areas of life and how profoundly true it is and how it fits all of reality, there is a confidence that you have going in there into that discussion. This is what enables you to be able to get in there and be gentle at the same time. You are no longer being reactive at this point. Having that lordship of Christ over you is what makes this possible. And I've had both conversations. I've had the ones where I'm arguing to be right and merely being reactive. And I've had the ones, praise God, where I've shut up and the Holy Spirit has taken over. And who are those reactive ones with? Usually family members. Exactly. Because those are the ones that can push our buttons and they purposefully do it, right? B.B. Warfield, anyone ever read anything from him or at least know who he is? Okay. 
he has a famous quote on this. It's a little long, but stay with me. And of course, you know, he's a uh, 18th and 19th century preacher. We must not then, as Christians, assume an attitude of antagonism to truths or of reason, or to the truths of philosophy, or the truths of science, or the truths of history, or the truths of criticism. As children of the light, we must be careful to keep ourselves open to every ray of light. Let us then cultivate an attitude of courage as over against the investigations of the day. None should be more zealous in them than we. None should be more quick to discern truth in every field, more hospitable to receive it, more loyal to follow it. It's not for Christians to be lukewarm in the investigations and discoveries of the time. Rather, as followers of truth, indeed, we can have no safety in science and philosophy save in the arms of truth. It is for us, therefore, as Christians, to push investigation to the utmost, to stand in the van that is the forefront of criticism, to be the first at every field, to be the revealer of truth, also our redeemer. The curse of the church has been her apathy of truth, in which she has too often left to her enemies that study of nature and of history and of philosophy. And even that investigation of her own peculiar treasures, the scriptures of God, which should have been her chief concern. Thus, she has often been forced to learn from the inadvertent or unwilling testimony of her foes the facts that she has needed to protect herself from their assaults. And thus she has been led to borrow from them false theories in philosophy, science, and criticism, to make unnecessary concessions to them, and to expose herself as they change their positions from time to time to unnecessary disgrace. What has the church not suffered from her unwillingness to engage in truly scientific work? She has nothing to fear from truth, but she has everything to fear, and she has already suffered nearly everything from ignorance. All truth belongs to us as followers of Christ. The truth let to let us at length enter into our inheritance. So what's Warfield saying here? He's saying throughout the ages, we have lazily sat in the pews. We have been spectators as those who are the enemies of Christ have been at the forefront of philosophy and botany and biology and medicine. And we've just sat idly by. And look at the state that we're in now. Look at the uphill battle that we have to even try and get a foothold in any of these conversations in our world right now. We have absolutely crazy stuff. Uh, it's just reminded this wasn't originally part of the plan, but here, I mean, this was absolutely insane. This is one of the funny things on Facebook I had seen this morning, but it's, it's prevalent to what's happening. You know, it's, if you guys remember Isaac Asimov and re reading those books when you were kids, you know, in 2020, we'll have flying cars and all this fancy scientific stuff. 2021, Demi Lovato sings to ghosts to help them overcome trauma caused by sexism in a past life. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> I mean, please make it stop. But this is the kind of stuff that we can't even get a foothold in right now. We can, but it's like trying to ice skate uphill, yeah. right? <laughs> Understanding the truth has been profoundly taught in scripture, and it's been taught in church history, and we've dropped the ball massively as a church. 2 Corinthians 10.5, what? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, to be able to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's, that's the ideal commandment, right? To understand, as Augustine did, if you guys are familiar with St. Augustine, that all truth is God's truth. 
Oh, now be with me on, on this one. Okay, this is Augustine. So Augustine would argue along these lines if you're reading um, his book, City of God. Because all truth is God's truth, we ought to learn everything we can about anything we can. He was a voracious student. Because every particular truth will lead us back to the God of truth, right? That is why we can be fearless when we look at truth. We don't have to be afraid of the implications in the sciences or in philosophy or in history or in whatever arena we are addressing truth in. We don't have to be afraid of anything that is part of God's creation. If we ourselves get off the stands and become doers rather than spectators of this. Now, I'm not saying that all of us are called to be C.S. Lewis's or J.P. Moreland's or any of these other great apologists of our time. But I am saying that we have to give a defense of the truth of Christ. We have to. That's not an option. It's going to happen in your life where you're going to have to defend why you are the way you are and why you believe. But also what we need is a way to carry out that truth in the way in which we live our lives and in our professions. That's the important part, too. How we do it. C.S. Lewis had a classic essay. Well, you guys didn't think you'd get through a class without a Lewis quote, did you? (laughs) Here it is. At one point in Christian Apologetics, you can find it in um, a book called God in the Dock. It's a collection of essays that that Lewis had. And he makes the point that it's a good thing to be able to present a case for faith, obviously. And this is what Lewis says. I love this. We can make people often attend to the Christian point of view for half an hour or so, or even less, depends on the audience. But the moment they have gone away from our lecture or laid down our article, they are plunged back into a world where the opposite position is taken for granted. As long as that situation exists, widespread success is simply impossible. We must attack the enemy's lines of communication. What we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects. With their Christianity latent, You can see this most easily if you look at it the other way around. Our faith is not very likely to be shaken by any book on Hinduism, right? You guys would be fine by reading a book about Hinduism. However, if whenever we read an elementary book on geology, botany, politics, or astronomy, and we find that its implications were strongly Hindu, that would shake us, right? It is not the books written in direct defense of materialism that makes the modern man a materialist. It is the materialistic assumptions in all the other books. In the same way, it's not books on Christianity that will really trouble him, but he would be troubled if, whenever he wanted a cheap, popular introduction to some science, the best work on the market was always by a Christian. That would trouble him. The first step to the reconversion of this country is a series produced by Christians, which can beat the Penguin and the Thinker's Library on their own ground. Its Christianity would have to be latent, not explicit, and of course, its science perfectly honest. Science twisted in the interest of apologetics would be sin and folly. Okay, now let me unpack that a bit and back that up with what Lewis is actually saying. He's saying we don't have to lie, we don't have to stretch the truth, we don't have to make exaggerations proving um, and trying to insert proofs for God where they're not naturally there. What he is saying is that we as Christians can be leading the academia in all other aspects of life. We don't have to just be writing apologetic books or theological books. We can be writing books on geology 
with a Christian point of view under it. We don't even have to announce that we are Christians in the book. But if our students are reading that and they just naturally have the underlying tones, have you guys ever read anything with underlying tones of either atheism or liberalism? Or It's there, right? And you see how that's accomplished. But Lewis is also saying that we do not want to twist science, the true science, in interest of apologetics. That would itself be sin and folly. But we need to get out there and we need to actually start doing these things or having these conversations or writing these papers or having these talks. That's why we're here. That's why we are all learning these things so that we can have people deeply grounded in the truths of Scripture to go out with that foundational knowledge and live out their professions, whether as a botanist, a physicist, geologist, whatever have you, accountant, that is what's needed in order to make a difference. To live out the Christian faith, not only in our private lives, which is important, but in public life where we can have influence. That's the most important. That's how we affect a change. Where we can have disciples that can defend and articulate faith in Christ, not only able to do it in a personal, but in a public life, we need to not only know the Bible and scripture, but we need to engage culture. What do I mean by engaging culture? To be able to make the link to the things that fascinate people, the latest books or the latest movie, etc. I'm trying to encourage you all to dive in and research to affect a change in your own personal sphere of influence, wherever that is. Basically make our world a giant Venn diagram. Do you know what those are? Those are those circles that interlink with each other. There's a, there's a little space where they all you know, come, come together, where we infect it all. So how do we do that? I love it. Look at Paul on Mars Hill. He did it perfectly. He connects with the culture by saying, hey, hmm, I see you guys are pretty religious people. That's cool. You have a, a tower or, or uh, what do you call those places? Monument, thank you. Where, where you worship everything. You even have one to the unknown God. That's, huh? Unknown, yeah. Yeah. Yes, unknown God. <laughs> and Paul says, let me show them to you. See, he, he connected with the culture to show them Christ. I'm not saying to be ridiculously cultural relevant, like having Kagers for Christ and any of that nonsense. <laughs> yes, it has happened in our state. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that we have to remain relevant to our culture. You guys have probably heard this buzz phrase before, but we do not need to be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. And you can't impact those around you. We need to be able to understand the things that people care about in our culture and to be able to relate them to the truths of Scripture. And we need to make explicit arguments where they are appropriate and necessary. We need to understand those things. Do you guys enjoy reading the news? I hate it. It does nothing but make me angry, but we have to pour through it. We have to see what is happening in our culture so we can actually have those conversations and we can still be relevant and still talk. So... The second point in Christ. Who was he going to send in his place? Well, the Holy Spirit, of course. The advocate. What is his, what is his job? Well, in verse 8, we saw it tells us when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is the Holy Spirit's job. There is evangelism. However, no true outreach unless the Spirit works to drive home the message that you are preaching. Let me say that again. 
There can be no true evangelistic outreach unless the Spirit is actively involved driving home the message that you are saying. What happens without the Spirit? Camp, right? People have a religious experience. They have a spiritual high. We've seen it at camp. Uh, we've seen it at crusades, right? And when pretty much, the, you know, Jesus told us perfectly in the parables that these are the seeds that fall on the rocky soil and the thorns come up and they're just taken away. The wind blows it away. Without him, meaning the spirit, that is where we have the mass of people who just simply, there's no roots in it at all. And it's a travesty to watch that if you have watched that in person where you've watched those who were once you think were just absolutely on fire and completely fall away after a week or two. You can talk about a lot of things, but one thing you cannot do is convict them of sin. You cannot do that. That is the Holy Spirit's job. You can address the sin, but it is not your job to convict them of it. Do you understand the difference between the two? Romans 1, God's eternal Godhead and his deity are so clearly seen that people are without excuse, right? We see the problem of evil as a great stumbling block to faith. Now, what do I mean by the problem of evil? Well, here it is uh, again in a, in a nutshell. Problem of evil goes like this. There's evil in the world. We recognize that, right? If God is all good, he would want, he would have a desire to eliminate evil in the world. If God is all powerful, he would be able to eliminate evil in the world. Evil is in the world. So therefore, a God who is all good or all powerful does not exist, right? That's the problem of evil, and that is a huge stumbling block of faith. How many times have you guys encountered that argument? What about the bad things that happen to good people? But God has done something decisive about evil, and we completely neglect that in our conversations. What did he do that was decisive about evil? He sent his son to win the victory. It's done. Already did it. When the ruler of this world has been judged, remember that? I pointed that out. That's a very interesting phrase, the ruler of this world to be judged. Obviously, that's not referring to Christ. So who's the ruler of this world? So why do we have sin or evil in this world? Satan, because the one ruling it is an evil dude. When the ruler of this world has been judged, we view the world in a whole different context. The outcome is no longer in any doubt. For example, those of us that can remember or those of us that are close enough in history, or at least it was taught well enough in history, uh, D-Day. Once D-Day happened, we were certain of the outcome of the war. We knew that there were other battles who had been fought, but we were absolutely certain what the outcome was going to be. We knew. Same thing here. This one has completely been won, and we are certain of what the outcome is to be. We particularly need the speed to go out and give our apologetics. We cannot be effective in merely just giving cold arguments. That doesn't do anything for people. Trust me, I've been there. Or to be argumentative, that's even worse. Not just go about winning the argument, we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So what has Christ gone away to do? To pray for us, Hebrews 7.25. Actually, let me pull that up real quick. Let's get to Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he, speaking of Christ, is also able to save the uttermost, save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Meaning Christ is praying for us. Constant intercessor. Now, you ever think about that? 
when you walk into an arena where you know it's not a Christian-friendly place and that you are going to be on the defensive here, that when things are difficult, not only do you have the power of the Holy Spirit, but also Christ praying for you at the same time, that is an amazing comfort there to realize that. The presence of the Spirit will allow you to walk into that arena and speak more powerfully than you ever have before. And to have that knowledge that Christ is there praying for you at the same time. We need to come to the foundation of the Lordship of Christ as our apologetic. To first, notice what 1 Peter 3.15 says, to first sanctify the Lord Christ in our hearts and then afterwards give a reasonable defense. So we can't have this apologetics, all this stuff we've been learning in this class. We can't have it, and it will be of no effect without the sanctification of Christ as lordship in our lives over every aspect of our life. The apologetics are up to no avail. It's not going to do a doggone thing at that point. We need to be those who are able to go out and engage the world in all kinds of ways, whether we like the uh, position we're in or the topic that we're having to engage in or not or how uncomfortable it is. But it begins with what? It begins with that lordship of Christ. That's it, guys. <laughs> That's it for the rest of the year um, until, uh, until next year. And then we'll continue on our apologetics talk. But did all this make sense, I hope? Yeah? <laughs> uh, trust me, it was not easy for me to write it. Um, it was as convicting as all get out for me as well, <laughs> studying this stuff and saying, huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely missing the boat on a lot of those as well as far as my particular sphere of influence where I know I can affect greater changes than I do, and not just in my words, but also in my actions. Um, any questions or comments on that? I always love to hear that. Well, we need to, need to teach our kids. We do. And, and we need to encourage them to explore every area of life, you know, from... The godly world view. Yeah. God's word. Encourage them to think about it, write about it. Encourage people who are interested in doing this. We do. And and uh, it comes, like I said, we fall grossly short on this idea of teaching our children that all the sciences come from the one who originated truth. I mean, I once had... Um, if you guys know the Institute of Creation Research down in Santee, California with Dr. Henry Morris. Well, Dr. Morris is no longer with us. He's in glory um, and his team. But Dr. Morris, once I was fortunate enough to be part of that class, he once taught an entire um, science of natural history just from the book of Job. It was an amazing class. That was awesome. But the point is we have these tools at us at our disposal, which we are completely just letting it fall by the wayside, and we're not doing a good enough job, in my opinion. And that's why we have people singing to ghosts because they had trauma from a sexist culture. I'm, I, I can't even at this point. I just, okay. <laughs> Boy, have we really dropped the ball to allow something like that to have happened. Any other questions or comments? No? Alrighty. Oh, yeah, Lucy. Just the, you know, waiting for the Holy Spirit. It's like when Jesus left, yet it's in the Holy Spirit came. And, and so the Holy Spirit lives in us, so we are able to preach, you know, uh -huh. when we um, 
even though we feel fearful, we're worried that we're going to make a mistake or something like that. Like you said, if you just be quiet, God will. And I don't know how many times I've been confronted with that, where you're talking to somebody and the subject comes up, and you know you got to say something, and I'm just like. Lord, help me. <laughs> my heart right. is like, Lord, help me say what you want me to say to this person, because otherwise it can totally get really weird out there because my flesh gets in the way. But yeah, allow quiet you know, spirit and let the spirit speak to you. I don't know how many times I've been just like, wow, I, those words weren't mine. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> you know? I know, isn't that awesome? And, and you're right about you know it getting weird because then when our flesh kicks in, what happens? We want to be the, the smartest person in the room and we want to win the argument and we start jumping to arguments and the, the conversation goes in really weird places. Yeah. You know, and you'll have this one question first off and then pretty soon it gets on like, you know, I don't know what, seeing to ghosts, right? <laughs> and it just gets absolutely bizarre. And you're right, that, that's our flesh rather than just submitting to the Lordship of Christ and letting the Spirit do the work in us. Any others? Alrighty, well, let's close in prayer. Father, again, we praise you so much, Lord, for the work that you have done. Um, I, I just, I can't even begin to uh, comprehend the works going on behind the scenes and that you allow us to be part of it. Uh, what an awesome, awesome gift, Lord, that we can be part of your redemptive plan. God, just continue to give us that, that fervor, um, that boldness, and most important, um, give us that understanding of what it means to have Christ as lordship completely over every uh, aspect of our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.